Thank you for joining the Zen Care Podcast. These recorded Dharma talks are given freely to our community in the heart of New York City, which we are honored to now share with you. New York Zen Center for Contemplative Care is dedicated to transforming the nature of care through contemplative practice by meeting illness, aging, and death with compassion and wisdom. Learn more about us through zencare.org. Good morning, everybody. Good morning. So amazing in the morning. Surprising, cool, and refreshing. <laughs> Yesterday, hot and sunny. You never know. So much like the practice itself. Promising nothing except to actually completely show up to where you are moment by moment. And as I often think about, all we have is the time and how we inhabit time. Are we going to spend our time in reactivity favoring our conditioning and our old story about what's happened to us when nobody knows the troubles we've seen because of our particular sad and sometimes terrible stories, heartbreaking stories. But the reinvestment in those stories is not what this practice is about. Zen is like completely uninterested in our habitual stories about, well, I would do that, but you don't know my story. When I was training in chaplaincy, I thought I had quite a good story, a sad story, my own victim story. And I was in a committee where I was, when I was going to become a teacher of chaplaincy. And someone asked me a question to do something, actually. And I said, oh, well, if you knew my background, <laughs> that's not good for me. And she's such an amazing woman. Kathleen Ogden Davis. She smokes lots of cigarettes. And she, <laughs> she leans forward and she says, Honey, your suffering ain't nothing special. <laughs> She's like, All it's doing right now is disconnecting. You want to keep doing that? You do that. <coughs> you want to do something new? Then we can participate. So great. This thing we have. And then often we will make, if we're so tied to that conditioning, as we all are in different ways, 
then we tend to need to make other people wrong. <coughs> or that they don't really understand us. Because if they really understood us, they would know how bad it was for us. And so then we can think about their errors and faults. Because they don't really get us. Our particular flavor of suffering. And then, of course, we're elevated into a new knighthood of victimhood. Because our victimization that maybe was real and so painful, I know mine was, but it becomes something else. It becomes like this thing that I need you to participate in now as if it's still happening right now. And I want you to reinforce and knight me again for that. It's tricky. One thing is to have compassion for our stories, which is essential. Another is to require, come closer, Claire. Even closer. <laughs> but it's another thing to require people to reinforce the story. James Baldwin said, we can disagree and still love each other. Unless your disagreement is rooted in my oppression. and the denial of my humanity and right to exist. Also important to, crucial to understand. So when we, the peacemakers that we're a part of, say unconditionally accepting what each moment has to offer, does not mean blindly. Or to blindly accept being oppressed because it's just like unconditionally accepting what everything has to offer. That can be used as a weapon too. And that's the precept of not talking about others' errors and faults, accepting everything as it is. 
But for me, it's not such a great translation because I think that we have to be much more careful about how we speak. Even in our own heads. At least I do. I can spin tales like nobody's business. How about all of you? Never mind people in political office, people I see on the street. And be so sure <coughs> that I'm right. In forgetting what Dogen says, which is, in the midst of Buddha Dharma, we are the same way. the same dharma, the same realization, and the same practice. Don't let them talk about other errors and faults. For when we do that, we destroy the way. So to realize that in some ways that all of us suffer. There's not a single being, little plant. Our cats suffer. But to elevate our own suffering is missing the point. But to realize that we each have our unique suffering. Some of us suffer with illness and great losses. Some of us have experienced incredible violence, sexual violence, verbal violence, physical violence. And yet, he's saying, we're the same. And when I talk about there's errors and faults, what does that do? Of course, this is a famous preset because we're so, so involved in it. Like you can't read actually even the New York Times without experiencing that, never mind the saucy magazines. <laughs> so I try to read, every time I read the Times, I try to read Breitbart as well. After each other. What's the truth? Is both sides just knocking the other side? Who's right? I was at lunch the other day with a very old friend. 
and someone else that we know for a long time who has her own particular challenges. And is an easy target. Came up in conversation. Because she's so wounded. And this looks so very brilliant and amazing person. And I felt that little creature come up. I'm sure none of you have ever had that feeling. And actually, but then I got curious about the sensation of it, and it just also feels disgusting as it's arising. This is a nothing new situation. Like our suffering, like our special stories are also nothing new. About 6,000 years ago, um, there was a minor, um, a minor goddess named Fem, now known as Fame. Where the word fame comes from. And she was really into rumors and ill acknowledged reports and gossip. She was also had two sides of her where she also made people famous because she told their stories to everybody. She was actually kind of neutral. She would just like talk a lot. So she could give people fabulous reputations and terrible reputations. And she was thought to gain enormous pleasure from hearing stories and the affairs of both people and gods. And then she repeated everything to everyone. I've met people like that, actually. Because I've seen myself in the mirror. It is said that actually when she, she never really slept. Her eyes were always wide open, waiting for the next thing. Keeping an ear and an eye ready to receive for some delicious story that she could share. Some say that her tongue never stopped moving. <laughs> At a certain point, the gods kind of got fed up with her, <coughs> getting into their business and sharing their business with everybody, and shut her out of Olympus so that she could just tell stories about the people.
and that is thought to be the origin of gossip in the human world. So easy, right, to just let your tongue start moving. But for me, it's also about the mind itself, our little brain. It actually creates about 100 thoughts per second. So it's actually like she's in there. It's constantly creating, moving its tongue, you could say. And 80% of them are not new thoughts. The same thoughts you thought yesterday. Recycling. Reinforcing. So how do we just stop that talking? But to me, the practice is so amazing because it really is about learning how to, without shame or blame, but to just see and coming back to one, coming back to your breath, is a way to interrupt the blaming, the victimizing. Because the ground of this precept is that nothing is a mistake. Everything is perfection. Manifesting itself just as it is. There is no blame. as there is no separation between self and other. That is a rough one. This is one of the most challenging ones for me because I have a story. of incredible violence in my head, in my history. And what does it mean to make it really that there's no mistake? I was really into that there was a perpetrator. And on one level there was. That's also true. But what is it to take on this that there's no mistake. It's an ass kicker. To me, it's been very healing, actually. On the literal level of this precept, we just, you know, don't talk about other people. Even in your mind, don't make an enemy. In the kind of more relational way, examine situations, what's happening, 
in which it is appropriate to point out faults or speak up when something is wrong. It's like that flight where they drag that doctor off, beat him up. But what was so chilling to me was that all the other people filming it. It's so startling. All the people filming, but no one's saying, no. Stop it. What would you have done? easy to say we would do something different, at least for me. How do we personally and as a Sangha address harmful actions to ourselves and others? How do we take responsibility for how we participate? How do we feed and what are we feeding? To me, it's like dynamically thrilling to think about. Moment by moment, what are we feeding? Not like when you're practicing. So all we have to do is not to hold on to a single fixed view. No problem. One of the slogans we have is uh, all you have to do is accept others unconditionally. Not the ones you want to accept. Everybody. What would it mean to actually really take on accepting everyone unconditionally? I remember during the AIDS years, the height, beginning of it really, with Reagan, something and I went to a talk by Ram Dass and he said you know everyone's so angry with Reagan so I decided I had to put him on my altar <laughs> next to the other folks and do bows to him until I see him as the same Some of you know I was in Missouri recently, which is an eye-opener. <laughs> really was so amazing. You know, it's part of the Bible Belt. 
then this long stretch of highway, there's these, some of you know that there's these billboards, a three hour trip. The last time I took that trip, there were no billboards, but now there are a lot of billboards. And there are four genres. One is porn stores, fireworks, because they're legal, open your heart to Jesus and don't kill babies. And there was no sense of irony of that combination. (laughs) And really, within a few moments of, within five minutes of most of the conversations I had, people would ask me what church I belonged to. such a different orientation, right? And clearly it was just so important there, in that culture. And I realized, like, I just had not been, like, live in a little bubble. And there were, like, these incredibly lovely people. (coughs) But I just noticed, so many, I was so sure I was superior. I just saw that arising again and again, and I was like, by the fourth day there, I was just like, all right, already. Just quiet down. But it just arises all the time, really, just walking down the street how you elevate yourself over like, oh, that person, or this person, or, oh, I like that person, but not that person. Some of you do that. We're constantly doing that. I mean, the brain and the eye together, that's what they do. They notice difference. You're not, you're not, you're different, you're different. But then we believe that as if that's something to actually make a whole thing about. It's useful for crossing streets. But kind of thinking that you had the corner on truth You're sure you're right, the way you practice, the way you do whatever. It's not realizing that very little has to do with us. Our lives are not really our own. We're really just made up of a lot of things that even they never really are ours. This whole idea of ours is such a fantasy that will dissolve in its own time. For sure. You see that when, you know, so a moment after someone's died. It's so amazing. 
because then they're like, oh, where's that person who was like, I'm me and I'm my opinions and it's just gone. They've left the building. So what are we fighting for? <coughs> I love the story of Arachne. Some of you know that. So she was a, a weaver, shepherd's daughter. And she loved weaving. And she became quite a good weaver, as one might if you practice a lot. And she was so into how good of a weaver she was, she even said, you know, I'm better than Athena, the goddess of weaving. And refused to acknowledge that her skills came from Athena. Or at least some part of it. Athena, as she was often offended by a great many things, was also offended by Arachne. She came down to just make sure, to check it out, and she presented herself as a little old woman and approached the boasting girl and said, you can never compare yourself to the gods. Plead for forgiveness from Athena, and she might spare your soul. I love these myths, they're so dramatic. It brings out the thespian in me. <laughs> I only speak the truth, and if Athena thinks otherwise, then let her come down and challenge me herself, she said to Athena herself. <laughs> At which Athena removed her disguise of the little old woman and appeared in her shimmering glory, clad in a sparkling white gown. The two began weaving straight away. <laughs> Very competitive they were. <laughs> Athena's weaving represented four separate contests between mortals and the gods in which the gods punished mortals for setting themselves as equal to gods. Just to, you know, land her point. <laughs> Arachne's weaving depicted ways in which the gods had misled and abused people, particularly Zeus, tricking and seducing so, so many women. When Athena saw that Arachne had not only insulted the gods, but done so with a work far more beautiful <laughs> than Athena's own work, she ripped Arachne's work into shreds. 
and hit her on the head three times. And in rage, Arachne hanged herself. And then Athena said, live on then, and yet hang. Condemned one. But lest you are careless in the future, <coughs> this same condition is declared in punishment against all of your descendants. In punishment to your last generation. After saying this, she sprinkled her with the juice of Hecate's herb, and immediately at the touch of this dark poison, Arachne's hair fell out, and with it went her nose and ears. Her head shrank to the smallest size, and her whole body became tiny, and her slender fingers stuck to the sides as legs, and the rest is belly for which she spins a thread as a spider weaves her ancient web. This shows how the goddesses punish those who are mortal. But to me, this is like what happens in psychologically true. When we get so caught up in competition and elevating ourselves or elevating someone else. It's a curse, like Arachne's curse. It's so Greek too, isn't it? <laughs> I curse you and your family forever. But it is so much like what it's like. We, it's like a creating a curse. Seeing our lives as separate from each other. In the ground of being, the whole universe has no inside or outside. Others are ourselves. This is what Arachne didn't see. We ourselves are others. Everything is fully manifesting just as it is. Therefore, we must see others as ourselves and ourselves as others. How do we really understand that there's no you or I on a fundamental level? Who will you be when you're a corpse? I like to think about that myself. Who will I be when I'm a corpse? And will these opinions be important then? Will my rightness be important then? Were these treasured opinions 
and preferences be important then? Something to consider. So when we speak in our thoughts, words, and actions, these three things that seem like nobody knows where they came from, because they came from the world, probably, to consider in your thoughts, words, and actions, is it kind, is it true, and is it necessary? This has been attributed to the Buddha, to Rumi, to Jesus. Who cares, really? But they're not bad considerations, in particular for our own thoughts. How are we thinking? Is it kind? Is it true? Is it necessary? And we could add, will it still be true when you're a corpse? be true. I don't know why, but I find that incredibly joyful <laughs> and energizing. Because <laughs> it takes a lot of load off of our self-importance and self-clinging. our treasured opinions and thoughts and preferences. Learning how to love, to me, is far more interesting. Unconditional. Far more interesting than digging in deeper into your preferences and conditions. I'll close with a poem from Rumi, at least attributed to. What was said to the rose that made it open was said to me here in my chest. What was told the cypress that made it strong and straight, what was whispered to the jasmine, so it is what it is. Whatever made sugarcane sweet, whatever was said to the inhabitants of the town of Shagil and Turkestan, that makes it so handsome. Whatever lets the pomegranate flower blush like a human face, that being said to me now, I blush. Whatever put eloquence in language, that's happening here. The great warehouse doors open.
I fill with gratitude. Chewing a piece of sugar cane in love with the one to whom every that belongs.